So, so to be race blind is, according to the New York Times woke ideology, to perpetuate racism, right? So you have to constantly be talking about racism. And in order to constantly be talking about racism, you have to constantly be talking about race. I think the, the deeper trend that you put your finger on is that whenever you see this kind of endless re repetition, endless boom, 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 despite all the facts and all common sense, what you're witnessing is the manufacture of a narrative. That's how a narrative gets created in media. It doesn't get created through one article or one point that somebody makes in a podcast. It gets created when the Times in article after article across sections, business, metro, what, whatever it might be, food, books, art, whatever, um, they are making the same point again and again and again. Welcome to the New Flash Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Ricky Orpike, and joining me is the media savvy, Jonathan Astro. Look, Ricky, I don't have time for your jokes. I tell you what, I, I can't wait for this episode. I have been moaning on about the, um, the New York Times, the failing New York Times, since episode one. Yes. Of this show. And now we've got an expert. We've got someone, the only person who's written an authoritative book about how the New York Times sucks. Uh, I just, I, I cannot, I cannot wait. And I'm going to try and keep myself under control because mm. there's a lot I want to say, but I, I feel like I don't want to get Ashley Winsberg, who's our guest today. I don't want, I don't want him to have to co-sign some of what I have to say, you know? Oh, <laughs> uh, I'm sure it'll be okay. <laughs> All right. Well, let's, let's find out. Ashley Rinsberg is an American novelist, a media commentator, essayist, and journalist now based in London. Rinsberg's most recent book, The Grey Lady Winked, is an investigation of the New York Times and their fondness for mm, playing around with history, among other things. Uh, we're excited to uh, have him on the show to talk about uh, all things uh, New York Times and, and perhaps some other uh, uh, things related to the news media landscape more broadly. Ashley, welcome to The New Flesh. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. Well, the, the deal has been done. Elon Musk now owns Twitter. In a recent article, you wrote about how the New York Times have written very negatively about Elon, calling him uh, an agent of chaos. Uh, what is the New York Times beef with Elon Musk? It's, um, it's power. You know, it's a power shift, a, power, a transfer of power. And I think maybe correctly, in the New York Times worldview, that power is limited. It's, it's zero sum. So that if Elon gets it in the media sphere, the New York Times loses it. And I think they were, they were okay with that in the social media environment or ecosystem when Twitter was controlled by this highly corporate board of people who were you know, aligned ideologically in the right direction for the New York Times. And Musk is obviously breaking that model. And I think the fear of course, Twitter is important, but the fear, I think, is that this could happen again and again and again, and they might lose not just the New York Times, but the the broader um, progressive, hard left ideologies that have captured many of these institutions, including in tech, they might lose that foothold. And I think that really scares them. But, there, but there's a, I mean, obviously a lot of people have talked about this, but isn't aren't we ignoring the fact that Jeff Bezos is a is a media uh, owner as well? Uh, we generally are, yeah. We, we do ignore that fact. But I think that that's a very convenient um, thing to ignore because Bezos either keeps his mouth closed on the certain issues where Musk definitely does not, 
and you know musk is challenging the orthodoxies and that's that's what's getting him in trouble or bezos seems kind of sympathetic to the right causes you know he's hired people out of the obama administration for very senior roles particularly communications his his like number three in Am- at amazon is um was obama's former press secretary so you know there, there's kind of like bezos is is very much coloring within the lines politically and musk is really not so i think that's the distinction yes fair enough well before we get into your the the, the book uh i have a, a broad question i would like to know who reads the New York Times? Because I read the New York Times, and I just thought about it before. I think it might be the most expensive subscription I pay for. Um, uh, but I listen in the way, well, I read in the same way that you'd listen to like a Soviet radio station. Uh, <laughs> and I'm interested. In, <laughs> that's right. And I'm interested in who they're pitching their articles at uh, in 2022 and if it's changed over time. Um, I, you know, I think there's two questions that we could parse out of that one, which is there's who reads it and, and there's also who pays for it. And that's increasingly diverging those two things. So it used to be back in the day that, you know, a certain kind of New Yorker and maybe people in the Northeast of America would read it, meaning they would buy it. It would, to read it, you had to buy it. There was no real other op- option. Um, now today you can just kind of get you know whatever the limit of articles is three five whatever or you can just peruse the headlines or you can read the new york times um you know there's that ukrainian website that kind of rips off their content d news or whatever or any other number of sites that that either take their content legally or legally or illegally and sort of re- repackage it and there's a lot of people who read that because the new york times is still a lightning rod for political discussion for even for cultural stuff and for some of the really great content that they have you know i was like i was reading a really awesome article about um how to use a rowing machine properly in the times where that's it's cool i mean is it is it vital no would i pay for that definitely not but um you know on the other side of things who's paying for it that's the big question because the new york times is trying to they're not just trying to survive that's not what the new york times does they're not a surviving organization. They are a dominance organization. For them to be in the field means to own the field. So they're looking at how they can be and remain number one. And really, if you kind of like go through the deductive logic, that means being the only one in in the um, sort of traditional news landscape. And I think what they're doing is they are building up a subscription base by um you know like like everybody does like all content creators do which is like you go for your your core audience first for them a core audience is like younger woke millennials because those are the people that you can rely on to get fired up and then to pay for this stuff for not just one or two or five or ten years but you know for for 20 to 30 years just like their previous customer base would do which they would be lifelong literally lifelong subscription holders to the New York Times. And I think they're trying to recreate that. But to do that, they've got to go to this increasingly extreme base. It's kind of like that. There's that great cartoon by Colin Wright, where it's like, you know, it shows that a voter like who used to be here and then like the left moved here and then the left kind of moved even farther to the left. And he's still where he was, but everything else has shifted way to the left. Um, And I think that's what's going on at the Times also. 
But what, 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 one thing you mentioned there, like, do do work millennials pay for stuff though? Like, aren't they notoriously bad at paying for subscriptions and and that sort of thing? I mean, uh, you know, I, I, Trump was fond of calling the New York Times the failing New York Times. You know, uh, do they have enough of a financial base there with these woke millennials to to make it work? Like, what, what are their readership numbers like? Well, Trump obviously, uh, ironically, was a huge boon, a total windfall for the New York Times. Their subscription numbers went up dramatically. Um, they, their subscription, they, you know, they they ha- they do have quite a, a large subscription base. I don't exactly know the numbers right now. It was increasing until recently. It's leveled off. Um, so the question of if millennials pay for it, I think they pay for it if they believe that it's life and death content, like. This is like the future of democracy or nothing. And, and I think that's why we see a lot of the content of the Times is so polarizing. It's not kind of it's not like the well, let's let's just take a minute to think about this. And maybe maybe we're exaggerating type approach to reporting. It's, you know, the house is on fire, people. And I'm going to sell you the insurance policy now. And that insurance policy is, uh, you know, $14.99 per month uh, at The New York Times forever. And. That's why I think when we look at the 1619 project, which was a great example of this, because the New York Times has had this really, um, this really compelling marketing campaign for the past five years or so, which is truth. Like if you look at the billboards in, your, in Times Square, truth, truth matters, and they're they're equating themselves with the truth. And a centerpiece of that campaign was 1619, the, the 1619 project, which came out saying that America was founded not in 1776, when it declared independence from Britain, but in 1619, when the first slaves came to the colonies or were brought to the colonies. And what they're saying is that America was founded in slavery. And that's like a big radical, you know, that what does it mean? It means like, if you look around America today, what you're seeing is a, the remnants of a slaveocracy and maybe still in many ways, a slaveocracy that, oh my God, like that, if, if suddenly you put that lens on your eyes and you look around and you're just seeing slavery, in your, in your schools, in your libraries, in your fast food, in your highways. And that's like, yeah, I better, I better pay my money to like help fix this incredibly awful. It's like looking, watching the Holocaust un, unfold before your eyes and not being willing to pay for $14.99 to stop it from happening. Of course you're going to pay if that's what you believe. So they actually have an, a senior vice president there went on the record at, for a journalism um, trade newspaper talking about how the 1619 project was really a centerpiece of the truth campaign. And it was a really about marketing to a, a new demographic. And, and I think it was really obviously successful. We're all talking about it. We're all still talking about it. So um, it worked. The question I have about that is if, how long can you keep it going? Because uh, it's a bit like the, the, you know, one of these cults that's these doomsday cults. If you're like an eschatological cult and you say, yeah, the world is ending, you say it's a slaveocracy. Um, but then as to, as we, we march on and people sort of wake up, hopefully, out of this, 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 this fevered, uh, I don't know, like um, hysterical dream that we've been living for the past couple of years, won't, won't it get to the point where we reach a tipping point where people maybe, or maybe this is wishful thinking. Don't, don't they're like, oh, I'm not. I don't have that life or death thing. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, because now that I think about it, most people are just getting on with their lives, and it's not life or death. Do you think? What do you think, Ashley? 
I think that, uh, yes, that's definitely true. I think people will, will you, you can only live in a state of that kind of readiness, that kind of panic for so long. Like it's why, you know, it, wouldn't it make sense if every nation just stayed on the equivalent of, of DEFCON 1, you know, total preparedness forever, then you would be ready for any attack. And of course, that doesn't make sense. It, it's, it's too resource intensive. And I think the same thing psychologically for readers, they're just like, you get to that point where you're like, I just can't be in this place anymore. I can't be fired up every single day. It's exhausting and it's insane. But I also think that um, on a bigger basis, we're, you know, today is, today is the midterm elections in the United States. They are, um, there is this kind of consensus that there will be some sort of um, reckoning for the Democratic Party and its, and its excesses over the last few years. I think that's true. I think there will be, even if it's not today, it will happen in some form. And I think that's the point where the New York Times kind of gets a sense that the wind is blowing in a different direction. And and the Times is good at that. They're, they're good at kind of like sensing or or, or at least they, they really try to maintain some ability to, to sense where the winds are blowing economically and culturally and follow them to some extent, not completely, but they, they do attempt to. And I think that's a, at that point where they start to realize, oh yeah, we can't, we can't keep um, preaching to a choir that is essentially 0.1% of the American population if we hope to do this dominance play. Like we, you actually do need to be a newspaper for everyone. The problem with that is that, and I think this is the problem with the New York Times in general, is that they're controlled by a single family who's making all the decisions. And if that family, if it doesn't agree with their ideological preferences or prejudices, um, then it just it just won't happen. And that's what we've seen over and over. The Times is making these decisions that are just they're economically they don't seem to be great decisions because you're alienating so much of your potential customer base. But in news generally, and this is kind of a separate point, the news business it's not a business because when you look at news organizations, they don't treat their their customers like customers. They treat the, the customers like almost the journalists. Like, who, who are you trying to please here? You're trying to please this elite class of, of quote-unquote influencers um, who are not the people paying for your product. And that's why also when you even look at the, the user experience on a news website, it's terrible. It's like the worst user experience on the entire internet. When you go and try to just whatever website you pull up, and you go through like six pop-ups and there's like video running every direction and like ads flying at you from like left, right, center, bottom, top. And you're like, what is, just get me out of here. Get me back to Twitter. Cause the, like <laughs> it's halfway sane. It's because they don't understand that there is a, there is a, a user there who is a customer for them. The sort of the goal is just to put out news content that they think is good, not news content that their, their potential customer really values. And that's, again, one of these enormous kind of instances within where the news industry fall, completely falls down and has to be subsidized, cross-subsidized by other businesses that are owned by parent corporations. And then you have this insane concentration of media because of this factor that no one can really, no one can really do this profitably on their own. We're unaware of exactly how the midterms are going to play out. But there is a sense that uh, the Republicans are going to slay the Democrats. If that does happen, do you think the New York Times are going to double down on some of this, you know, ap- apocalyptic rhetoric, or or are they going to dial that back a bit? Do you think? 
I think short term, they're definitely doubling down. That's what they do. They, they double down. They don't, they, they are one of the most unrepentant organizations that you can find. It's like, you look at any other company and when they make enormous missteps, they're like, we, you know, we do, they do the whole like listening to our thing. You're like, we're sorry, we heard you. The New York times does the complete opposite. And like, instead of saying we heard you, they're like saying, fuck you. Like you, (laughs) you guys are, you are idiots. If you think we did anything wrong here and we're going to show it to you by like doing, you know, the same kind of content times 10. And, um, again, I don't know, maybe there's, you know, there was that, this, and this was actually a New York Times story. There was a, a an eyeglass um, company online that their product was so bad that it created enormous numbers of negative reviews on review websites. But that actually had the effect of, of raising the company's profile online and on SEO. So they would actually get more business for it. And you kind of feel like that that might be the similar or some kind, some kind of analogous phenomenon with the Times where so many people hate them. It's like... It's, you know, I wrote this book, The Gray Lady Winked, about the New York Times, and I published it. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I can sort of see where, like, conservatives might like the book or, you know, maybe the, there's, like, very hard left that also dislikes the New York Times as well. I'm like, yeah, maybe them too. I didn't think it would be everybody. Like, I, I really was like, you know, people popping up, like, in India. Like, India is, like, the one of my biggest um, base customer bases for this book because, um they just they, they hate the New York Times. You're like India. Like, what's the connection? And tech people and crypto people and just it's all over the place. And you know, f- like traditional liberals. So all these people hate the New York Times. But the effect might be that everyone's just constantly talking about the New York Times. Like, we're not here talking about USA Today or you know Financial Times or Economist. Like, we're only talking about this one newspaper. Mm. So there might be something to that phenomenon as well. Well, I hate them and I pay for them. So that I think that says that's <laughs> exactly. everything. So do I. <laughs> so, uh, but you mentioned, look, there's a bunch of stuff in there. We're going to get to all of it. So don't worry. But but the, the you mentioned the midterm. So just stay on that for a second. Now, uh, I plucked a random headline just today, okay, from the top of the main page. Uh, it tells you everything you need to know. Quote, candidates make final pitches on economy, abortion, and democracy, close quote. Now... I won't quiz you because I think you've already picked it out. Abortion and democracy are only being spoken about by Democrats, for starters. Um, and the glaring admission directly affecting many voters, New Yorkers especially, is crime. So, um, I mean, Adam Creighton, uh, a journalist based in DC that we catch up with regularly, he says that the crime is noticeable and out of control. Uh, I mean, I've got so much to say, but uh, you can take it any way you like. But but, but uh, one of the questions I have is, h- how can the editorial desk let this totally subjective headline go out unchallenged? Well, because it's, it's you know, I, I think in some regard, there's always going to be that subjectivity of what, what gets covered and what doesn't. So the, the bias of omission and the bias of commission, it's going to be there because you have to make a choice. And that's kind of like the, it's built into the model of a newspaper. Um, so they're making that choice and you kind of think to yourself, well, that's okay, right? They they are a sort of left of center newspaper and they're gonna sort of make those decisions like that. I think the problem is that it is so, it goes so deep with the times and it's so relentless that it becomes more than a bias and it becomes an agenda. And when it's an agenda, it's something that, that no single 
person in the organization or a group of people in the organization, except for the ownership, can really combat. So they have to, it's kind of like, you're, you know, you're in this massive, like, if you think of almost like a sort of radical movement where you get caught up in it and it gets more and more radical as you go and you're just watching people around you being completely brainwashed by it and you think, hold on, this is wrong. I'm going to do what? At that point, it's it's kind of too late. So if you're there, you're already on board ideologically. And I, I think that's how, um, that's how that kind of stuff happens. What ends up happening though, is that they, they end up running just outright falsehoods, errors, um, things that are just objectively not correct. And, and that's where you start to see that this bleeds over, um, you know, into things that they, they should probably be more cautious about, but they can't be because the narrative becomes the overriding factor. So, yeah, I think you're right with, with um, the midterms. They want to talk about and they want to keep people focused on abortion. They want to keep people focused on, you know, the, the quote unquote death of democracy, um, <laughs> where New Yorkers are definitely thinking and talking about two things, crime, number one. And yeah, I was just in New York. I, I lived in New York about nearly 10 years ago. And it was it was still in that period where you, you just felt fine no matter where you went. And New York looked insane. I was like, you just you know, your head is turning left and right. And you're like, what am I actually seeing here? Like walking down the street, six Avenue is just like, you know, people who are having psychotic episodes one after the other. And you're like, what is going on here? No, nobody's even looking. It's like been normalized. But then of course the other big issue for everybody is the economy. And that's, that's the thing that you can't, you can't message around it. You can only ignore it. It's that bad. You can't pretend as the media tried to do that, that inflation is good for us, that it's going to be good for social security because people's social security checks are increasing or that it's going to be good for the environment because of whatever. So they, they have just ignored it. And again, they do that at their own peril. It doesn't, you know, I think people start to look at this and they, and, and those like center left people and not the hard left, but the center left readers who are like, hold on a second. I can barely afford to buy groceries right now. And the New York Times is talking about the death of democracy. That's like, it's so far from their reality. And that and that's where that subjectivity hurts them um, with their own, you know, so to speak, with their voters, with New York Times voters, their readers, because people will end up voting with their feet. In this case, just leaving the newspaper, not coming back. And there's a lot of that going on. But this is exactly what James Carville spoke about a, a, a little while ago. He said... Stop with this faculty lounge politics. That's exactly what this this particular issue. When I whenever I hear someone parrot this phrase, "the death of democracy," I go, "Why is no one listening to Carville?" Yeah, because you know why are they not listening to him? I think they I think they can't at this point. I think it it goes back to that same phenomenon where the entire party, the Democratic Party, is so is so captured, is so in the tank with with this these um you know you we could like look at it from the outside and say see it as a single monolith as like the faculty lounge politics or woke or whatever we want to just use you know as a concept to describe it but within that system they're not looking at it as a single monolith they're just looking at it as like 10 20 30 or 40 principles that cannot be violated so they're not going to be they can't violate the idea that um you know 
Trump is is destroying democracy or Republicans are evil or that, you know, human rights and whatever, whatever they are, they, they go one by one and they just have to maintain this adherence to those principles. And the outcome is just craziness. And but they can't let go of it. And I think that's where they're, you know, the, the great um, the great business thinker, uh, Jim Collins, who wrote Good to Great, it's a famous business book. He talks about how you have a, you can have a flywheel in in business, where as you go, as the more you go, the more you pull, the faster the flywheel turns, and the faster it turns, the faster it continues to turn. And the opposite of that is is this sort of um, doom spiral, where you're the the more you get invested in that spiral, the farther down you spiral, and, and that's clearly what I think is happening with the Democratic Party. They, they just cannot pull out of it at the moment until they crash, and. I don't think, you know, I, I don't, for me, that's not like the desired outcome. You've got a lot of people on, on the right who are like, yeah, destroy them. But that's not really what you want. You really want balance restored. You don't want just like want half of the party, the, the half of the country's party to be in utter shambles and be this com- like running shit show. That's not the goal. But I think that is where we're heading. We follow the culture war issues fairly closely. And and to us, it's beginning to seem uh, a, a lot like uh, seem like a, a lot of the trench warfare we see in the opinion columns of the New York Times is actually part of a of an uncoordinated push to to get everyone talking about gender and race and and not about class. So if you work at the New York Times, especially if you own it, uh, you are clearly part of an elite. Uh, highly educated minority, uh, you know, y- y- you have your hands on the levers, so to speak. Um, so y- you're most insulated from the extreme views you spout, and you desperately need people to not pay attention to how you pay for the rent, you know, how you pay the rent for your Brooklyn apartment. Do you think the New York Times misdirects its readers a- a- away from class and towards some of these sort of more niche, uh, these niche issues like gender and race? For sure, 100%. I mean, when you look at the New York Times ownership, that that family that controls the paper, I did a tweet the other day where I showed the last four publishers of the paper who all descend from this family, the Ox Sulzberger family. And the current one, his name is Arthur Sulzberger. The the previous publisher, his father, his name is Arthur Sulzberger. The previous one to that, who's the current one's grandfather his name is arthur salzberger and the previous one to that his name is arthur salzberger it's like it's like the matrix where you've got mr smith of you know white rich uh publishers who are uh, like i mean when you when you look at like dictionary definition of coastal elite in america you would just see a photo of arthur salzberger any one of them because that's what they are and they they in fact, are the, one of the last forms of primogeniture in America, where you have this, this institution that is a dynasty that hands down, down power from male heir to male heir. They don't even have a woman in contention for that slot. They've never had it. They probably are not going to for a very long time. And that doesn't look good. You know, that, that's like not something you want people to really pay attention to. So if you say, oh, well, check out Nicole Hannah Jones on our front page every day, um, then you've got a really good way to mask that. And I think that's the same thing. You know, I did a, a sub stack about Jon Stewart. Jon Stewart's come out of this like as this woke warrior mm-hmm. um, talking about about anti-black racism and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Well, go back. And this is what I wrote about in the sub stack. Go back. And look at his 
his correspondence on the Daily Show for the for the whatever eighteen years he was there or whatever. Look at the most successful correspondence that came out of the Daily Show. You will notice instantly that they are all men and they're all white. And John Stewart ran that show, and he had more power than anybody on the entire show, and selected time and again white men to be his stars. Why? I don't know why. Maybe it's coincidence. Maybe it's talent. But what does it mean for his his woke warrior stance today? It's a cover. It's a cover for him having completely failed by his own standards. And rather than taking accountability, responsibility for that fact, he can just go and accuse Andrew Sullivan of being a racist on TV because that's way easier than saying to yourself, "Holy shit, I was a racist too." Mm, that was wild. That 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 was a his fall is is truly tragic and really tough to watch yeah it's it sucks it, and it's sad he always had a bit of that in him he always had a bit of his like pet issues that you know he would just he 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 would just not look at the other side and that, that for him of course it was about the democratic party and the republican party and he would go and do his sanctimonious thing on bill o'reilly's show or like or on tucker's show and and ridicule them for taking a side um, not realizing that he took a side every single night on his show and he just had a, a very effective way to win, which was pretending he wasn't taking a side. It was just jokes, but it wasn't. So that was that's John Stewart. And it's, it is unfortunate, but um, I think it was kind of always there. But I think the bigger issue there is saying like, well, why why hasn't the other side? Why haven't conservatives? They gripe nonstop about the media. Why not create your own thing? Why didn't it happen? And I think there is partly because power is so concentrated in the media. It, it really is a stranglehold um, by the networks and by a few large publishers. And it becomes an ecosystem that you can't break into. Now, I think we are seeing the rise of um, you know alternative media, conservative media, independent media, media that's not necessarily running DNC talking points. And we're seeing it on YouTube and we're seeing it on Rumble and we're seeing it on Twitter. We're seeing these people like you guys who are just doing their own thing or like the trigonometry guys in the UK here in London, um, you know, and they're being successful. That That's the wildest part. Like that's like, it's only the last two, three years that these people have really become successful. Rogan, of course, like being the, the, the best example of all this stuff. So I think we're actually seeing a kind of realignment of media from this really, really centri centralized siloed thing to something that is much more decentralized, a much more flat landscape. Um, something that, you know, you would think that the left would be very supportive of because they hate that kind of concentration of capital and resource that they critique in, in terms of capitalism. But in reality, this is like actual market forces. This is where we're seeing that people have access to distribute their content. And then like the, the, the market is just like, is flourishing, in my opinion. I think this is one of the best times to be in media. Are you are you are you hopeful that alternative media will diminish big, huge places like the New York Times? Uh, yeah, I think we're, we're that's already the case. I mean, you know, the, there's only so many eyeballs and and so many eardrums, so to speak. So that pool is actually limited, and either they go here or there. But I think what else what also happens is that you have a something that is more like narrative competition, where before you had a complete narrative monopoly, like the New York Times said it, and ABC News said it, and NBC and CBS and the Washington Post said it, all you need is really five, six outlets to say the thing for everybody to believe it. 
and it, that includes me. Like there are things about COVID, for example, that I was just like, oh yeah, well that's, you know, the China just did a better job. Like, and then I investigated it as a journalist. I'm like, oh no, they didn't. They just lied and, and the new, the Western media carried the lie for them. Um, that is no longer the case. You don't have that kind of monopoly because you can have like, uh, you know, it's like a piranha strategy where you, you just have 20,000 <laughs> independent accounts or, and or media outlets saying the other thing. And sometimes the outcome of that is that you also have people saying crazy things, of course. But I think that there will be some sort of, you know, like bell curve effect where the, the most n normal and um, the best approximation of reality kind of clusters around a few, a few similar narratives when it comes to a given topic. And the outliers kind of get it mostly ignored or discounted and that would be outliers on the extreme side of the like independent people just saying crazy stuff and the extreme side of the centralized people who are clearly pushing an agenda and people are just like this is laughable this is like laughably crazy like a political story that somebody sent to me, to me yesterday two days ago where they're like while it or a tweet was like while it's true that you know trump had denied the election but this time there actually might be tampering with the election that could you know destroy democracy in the in the same tweet that's like you're thinking to yourself how is that how could someone even press the send button on that <laughs> and not be completely embarrassed for themselves in their organization so anyways i think that's that is where we're headed to a much more um distributed landscape of narratives that that probably do cluster around something that is um, a better approximation of what's really the case. Well, before we leave the the dynasty of the New York Times, perhaps let's just talk about A.G. Salzberger for a second, because surely this guy, this guy has rich friends and business interests that you're not allowed to talk about. So what do we actually know about this guy? Nothing. That's the crazy part. <laughs> the Hollywood so, foreign press. Um, just sort of like a shadowy figure. Yeah, he, I mean, we know what Wikipedia allows us to know, and that's partly because the media won't cover him. So you think about, and this is something uh, Balaji Srinivasan, who's um, this great thinker of, uh, of decentralized philosophies, he talks about, you know, you will, have, you will have endless numbers of profiles on Elon Musk. Some of them positive, lots of them negative, critical. They will dig up every little fact. And, you know, that will be the same for Bezos. That will be the same for some like random startup that kind of caught fire for a minute. You will see zero, and I mean absolutely zero, unless it's a coordinated PR puff piece about A.G. Salzberger, who is the publisher of The Times right now. Nothing. You will have no investigations. You will have nobody looking into what this guy might have said, who, where his business interests lie. You will have only at the at the very, very most one article about sort of the who's in the running to become the next publisher, which they had that piece um, back when he was made publisher. It was like, was it going to be him or his cousin? That was the story. Um, so you really don't have any visibility into who this person is, really. Um, we're just kind of left to assume that he is this amazing, wonderful guy who went to Brown and, you know, worked on the Metro desk for two years or whatever, whatever Wikipedia says about him. And that's it. So I think this is one of those things that the media just like it just it's a it's an omerta type thing. Like you, you don't you don't question it. You don't talk about it. You just don't do it. And I think that's why we don't know who, who he is in any significant way. Mm. But since he took over in 2017, 
Isn't it fair to say that he's presided over some of the most shameful attacks on truth and integrity in recent memory? Yeah, I think that that is the case. And we had this great quote the other day by James Bennett, who was the, um, he was the op-ed editor for the Times, very senior person at the New York Times. And he published an op-ed by, by Tom Cotton during the, the protest riots of the summer of 20. Uh, 2020, and he got fired for that. So he has this quote where he talks about how A.G. Salzberger um, just just lit him on fire, basically, or something along along those lines, like really extreme. Because that that is exactly what happened. Like they they commissioned an op-ed by a sitting U.S. senator, a Harvard graduate um, who served his country in the military, and for that offense, Salzberger just fires the guy. Because the newsroom didn't like it. The public didn't care. That's the interesting thing. Mm-hmm. Nobody was like, oh, my God, that Tom Cotton. Maybe there was a few people on Twitter who didn't like it. But there was the newsroom who didn't like it. And he just dumped him overboard. Um, and, of course, the, the 1619 Project, it, if you look at it objectively, not as a marketing ex- exercise, if you look at it from a journalistic standpoint, debacle. I mean, how many professors of history do you need to come out against this thing for, for, for the Times to realize it was a huge fuck up. Like they, they made claims that are just patently false, according to historians of African American history, of American history, from the most prestigious left wing universities in America. So yes, objectively, total dumpster fire. I think he's had a little bit of cover because their stock price has done well over the last five years. They are, the New York Times company is a public company, publicly traded company, even though it is controlled by a two-tiered stock structure that gives the Salzburgers control of all decision-making within the company. But because, you know, we've seen this kind of general rise in, in, in securities and public markets over the last three, four, five years, um, or even, even longer. So the stock price is doing well and no one's, you know, money's coming in. You don't ask questions. That's like the famous line from Evita. So, um, I think that's given him, given him a lot of co- cover, but I think the um, accountability, the call for accountability, is not far off. Mm. Well, I'd I'd like to take things back a little bit further. Maybe you could give us a bit of an insight in in how this all began. Like like how did the New York Times begin? The Times was um, sort of a local New York paper in the middle, toward the end of the ni- the nineteenth century, and it was bought by a. German Jewish immigrant to to the United States to New York, whose name was Adolf Ox, and Ox was a uh, like you know you have a lot of the times the founder of a dynasty that really is interested in like doing well and, and making a difference, and that was very much the case. He he was a good businessman, and he really set out these principles that he he was interested in um, objective, neutral, gray news. That's why they called it the Gray Lady, like a very gray tone. And he laid down those principles, and the New York Times stuck to them for quite a while under his tenure. And then, you know, it, it became very successful. And then it was handed off to the first, uh, the first, you know, son-in-law, and then the next, this, the kid of the son-in-law, who was the first Salzburger, Arthur Hayes Salzburger. And then it just became Salzburger land. And I think that's the corrupting effect of, um, of a dynasty. I, there's a great nonfiction editor, book editor named um, um, 
sorry, Saul Bellow, Saul Bellow's son, whose name I'm forgetting right now, it's really embarrassing, but um, his, he wrote a book called, oh, sorry, his name's Adam Bellow. He wrote a great book on dynasties um, called In Praise of Nepotism. I think he wrote it in like 2003. Um, I blinked because there's a gardener outside my house blowing leaves with, with the most, of course, the noisiest <laughs> in, in, instrument in modern society. <laughs> So anyways, I think that's the effect that we see. Like you have a dynasty and the dynasty corrupts, it corrupts itself and it corrupts the thing that it owns um, in service of its own interests. And that's what we've seen with the New York Times happening and still happening to this day. And it will continue to happen until someone pries control of the Times from their fingers. Yeah, well, few people know this, but the New York Times has falsely reported on a number of big world events, including uh, the, the Ukraine Ukraine uh, famine that occurred, uh, I believe, between 1932 and uh, 1933, which resulted in the death of between five and seven million people. Then you've got the Holocaust. Uh, they also falsely reported that, that Poland invaded Germany uh, to start the Second World War. C can you give us some background on these big misreportings? Yeah, it's, um, you know, the, the, the premise behind my book was to say, all right, let's look at some of the New York Times reporting and how it changed history, misreporting, where they got the story wrong, how they got it wrong, why they got it wrong. And, you know, the bar that I really wanted it to meet was that each chapter, each event had to have had an impact on the, on the way history unfolded. So in the first case was their, um, their, their Berlin bureau chief in the lead up to World War II was a Nazi sympathizer. He actively, you know, worked to advance the, the Nazi cause from his perch as the New York Times Berlin bureau chief. So in my book, he's a collaborator, the way I think about him. And they covered everything from the 1936 Berlin Olympic Games as this incredible success. And they downplayed Hitler, um, Hitler's potential for to create destruction and havoc again and again and again. They called him a lofty, unselfish patriot who was probably going to retire to Bavaria. Um, and they they praised Munich, um, the Munich Accords, which we all know today was a complete disaster for world peace. It's what empowered Hitler to go ahead with his plans. So again and again and again, you have this thing. It wasn't just one incident. And then you look back and you're like, how is this possible? And you, what, you, what you discover is that this guy was a Nazi. And the even more shocking part of it is that the New York Times owners, the, the Salzburgers we've been talking about, were alerted to this fact by a Jewish editor in New York. And their response was that they threatened to sue the guy, the editor, for libel if he ever mentioned it to anybody. And that that was because they were protecting their business interests. The, the, the editor, the Berlin bureau chief, um, the Nazi in, in, in Berlin, Guido Andaris, he was getting great information. He was getting scoops because the Nazis would, would really bring stuff to him before anybody else because they could count on him to deliver a favorable story. So it was this, again, it was this kind of positive feedback cycle where he did good stories, they, he got better access, more stories, more access. And the Times realized that that's a goldmine, like you're breaking stories like that. You don't want to give that up in the middle of a war. You can't find anyone to replace you. They probably wouldn't let anyone back into Germany at that point. So they just said, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna squash the whistleblower here 
And the result was that it obviously impacted American public opinion about who the Nazis were and what they were doing. It, we look back today and we're like, oh, the Nazis, of course. At the time, it wasn't like that. At the time, the, the country had just come off of World War I. They weren't looking to enter into another European war. And the question about were the Germans really so bad? Were these, were they just, you know, is this just kind of a reactionary movement? People were looking to like change some economic practices and what, you know, rebalance the workforce or something. It was a really an open question. People did not know. And when the New York Times, the, the most famous newspaper in America at the time, was coming out and supporting the regime in this way, it really blunts the edge of what the Nazis were doing, um, intentionally so. So, you know, that was one instance. Well, what, what I don't understand is that, that the owners of the New York Times are Jewish, though. So, you know, what, what do they get out of sort of burying news about the Holocaust? The New York Times, the owners of the New York Times, so, you know, we think, okay, you're Jewish, therefore you support uh, Judaism and, or Jewish, the Jewish people in a, in, a, in a definite kind of way. But that's not really true. Like, that's kind of a lens we're looking through today where we're thinking, like, everyone gets behind their own ethnic group or race and does the rah-rah thing. That's definitely what happens in 2022. <laughs> yeah, that's that's our thing, right? Everyone wants to be like, I'm this and I'm that and I've got my label and I, I wear my badge proudly and whatever. But in, in the 1930s, where America was seeing spiking anti-Semitism, kind of like it is today, you have this group of immigrants from Germany and these were very specific people. They weren't, you know, we look at like the Jewish people as a monolith, but then you've got Jews from Syria and Jews from Yemen and Jews from Germany and Jews from Poland. And these Jews from Germany had been in, surrounded when they were in Germany by this culture of incredible uh, sophistication and wealth and um, advancement, all of which they were barred from because they were Jews for hundreds of years. It, they were charged a pig tax, the same tax you would pay to bring a pig into Berlin in order to walk through the city walls, the gates of Berlin, until they were liberated by Napoleon. And then you have this, this just deep desire to integrate, this deep desire to just be like the people around you, the, the German, the regular Germans around you. And that's very much what happened to most of the German Jewry, of which I'm a descendant, by the way. Um, so when these same people came to New York, they brought with them that same ethos, that same desire to fit in, to keep your head down, to be in the way the New York Times ownership would think about it as any other American. And just instead of worshiping in a church, you worship in a synagogue on Saturday rather than Sunday. So when it comes to the Holocaust, what the Holocaust is, is the, the systematic murder of the Jewish people. These guys didn't believe there was any such thing as the Jewish people. They were just people in different countries who worshipped in different ways. And that's why for them, it wasn't a legitimate category. And the Holocaust wasn't something they wanted to note because they were afraid that they would be seen as being a Jewish newspaper, not an American newspaper. And to be a Jewish newspaper at a time of rising anti-Semitism in New York, again, that would have hurt the business. That would have, that would have offended their, um, their ideology, their ideological prejudices as this unique kind of German Jewry that they were. And that kind of explains why they did something that is so seemingly impossible to understand when you look at it from, from 2022. Perhaps you could tell us who Walter Durante was, because he's sort of like a, a bit of an interesting character here. Yeah, Durante, I mean, it's a weird, it's a weird thing because Durante is like, you know, we, we, 
there was a there was this sort of I wouldn't today's a conflict between Ukraine and Russia. It's a war. Back then it wasn't a war. What, what happened was Joseph Stalin came to power and he needs to he needs to consolidate power. He needs to get people in line. So he does the Stalin thing, which is like, let's just kill a few million people. And he did that by um, killing these these collectivized peasants. They were they were not proletariat. They're not like industrial proletariat in in factories and they didn't want to they had they had like partial ownership of these shared farms that they didn't want to give up because they were doing well so his response is just to murder them by starving them to death and that became known as the ukraine famine holodomor holodomor and um it's estimated to kill have killed murdered uh, five seven uh, some people say up to 10 million people the new york times had a correspondent in Russia is probably at the time the most famous international correspondent in the world. His name is Walter Duranty. And Duranty just denied it. He just said there was no such thing. It's not that he said, we don't know if it's happening. We don't, we're not sure if there's a famine. He said there is no famine. He knew there was a famine. He saw with his own eyes. He admitted it to his friends and colleagues that there was famine. He denied there was a famine um, for political reasons. And the reason being that the big question on everybody's minds in that time in the United States, in terms of international relations was, is the United States going to recognize the new regime, the, this new Soviet regime in Russia as the legitimate government of Russia, which the United States had not done that. Since the, the revolution in 1917, until that time, the United States did not recognize the government. There was a huge push by the American elites, including the, the New York Times, to have FDR, who was coming into office, he was, he was a governor at that moment, but he would soon become president, recognize the USSR. But you were not going to accomplish that fact if that same government had literally, the year before, just murdered five million of its own people by intentionally creating a famine. So the New York Times stepped in Duranty denied there was a famine. Again, you have this most influential newspaper in America denying it. Therefore, is it really true that it happened? I'm not so sure. Maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. Possibly it didn't even happen. That This is what people would have thought to themselves. And then you have Duranty sitting with FDR while he was governor, urging him to recognize the USSR. Then FDR does go through with the recognition of the government. And there's a massive gala event in New York City at the Waldorf Astoria, attended by the ambassadors from the USSR to America and the American ambassador to the, to the USSR. And only one man there gets a standing ovation, and that was Walter Duranty. Because everybody in that room, which included the biggest power players of American society, business and politics, understood that it would never have happened without his intervention, which is to say that you could not have the government of America recognize a regime that had just committed genocide. So the solution there is let's just make the regime not innocent of genocide rather than guilty of it. And that's exactly what happened. And that was the, that was the, the big lie um, involving Duranty that's still told today. So the New York Times today will tell you, oh, he was just a rogue reporter. He was slovenly. Duranty was educated at Cambridge. He spoke fluent Russian in addition to three or four other languages. He was a brilliant reporter. He was incredibly famous for his, his uh, reporting. And he was anything but slovenly. He, he was very well 
read and very well traveled across Russia. And he, at some point, it was around 1931, he went to Berlin to renew his passport at the embassy there. And he tells the officer, the State Department official there, that in accordance with the, in the coordination by the, the head of the controlling, the owners of the New York Times and the Soviet government, everything the New York Times reported on Soviet Russia was, was pre-coordinated with the government, the Russian government. And the State Department official finds this so significant, he enters it into the official State Department record as a memo, an official memorandum. Um, so again, you here you have Durante admitting to this much bigger, deeper thing, which is really a conspiracy. Um, and it's on the record. All this stuff is out there, but the New York Times still, uh, oh, by the way, Durante then wins a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting on the Ukraine famine. And the New York Times today um, still has kept that Pulitzer and refuses to return it. Isn't it interesting that, you know, they'll, they'll talk about Trump and Russia collusion, but here is real, uh, real collusion. That's uh, it, yeah, that's not a conspiracy theory. It actually happened. What, what do you think would happen if they came out and admitted it and just said, you know, this was something that happened, uh, you know, a long time ago, and and they apologize for it, and and maybe give that award back. You know, what 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 would be the downside for them? I think the downside is that in their minds, then you open the can of worms, and and everyone starts looking at all the other Pulitzers. I did an article for Unheard magazine here in the UK um, that examines all the, the, or not all, at least the ones I was able to find, the Pulitzer Prizes the New York Times had, had, has received from, from the committee that were based on lies. Um, I've counted at least six or seven of those prizes and I'm, I'm just one guy. So what, what happens if you have the entire internet being like, well, what about this one? What about that one? Should you not have given back the one where the, the Pulitzer that they won for um, denying that there was radiation poisoning after the atomic bombing of Japan by the War Department? That was that was a piece of propaganda produced by the New York Times and the War Department. And the science writer for the Times got a Pulitzer for that reporting. Maybe that should be given back. You know, what else? The stuff coming out the Berlin Bureau that I was talking about the, that was run by a Nazi. Two of those reporters from that bureau won Pulitzers. Um, it, it really becomes then endless. And then the New York Times puts its credibility on the line, which is the last thing it wants to do. So it's just easier to say, you know what, we're just going to take the punches on this one and just continue to shift blame to this one guy who's been dead for 50 years rather than create a whole new set of scandals that we have no ability to, to predict um, at the moment. So just bringing us back up to the modern day for a little bit, uh, Ashley, I feel like the New York Times has a fetish for the word black, capital B. Whenever it appears, it's capitalized, as I say, it's as if they're screaming the word or bringing it up when no one asked, uh, or in some cases not bringing it up when it seems prudent. And now I know... John McWhorter has written about the difference between um, uh, being black culturally or racially, but still, there's something about the constant way the New York Times says, Mr. Blah Blah, uh, who is black? And they scream it at you. That really gets my goat. Um, and I just want to say, you know, to them, sometimes it's a story about a secondhand bookseller. Who cares if he's black? You know, like, like I mean, and, wh and wh why aren't they embarrassed about their inappropriate obsession with, with uh, this word black? I think because it's um, it touches back to a again another ideological principle today, ideological and cultural principle, which is that we we are no longer allowed to be race blind. 
that's not to, so to be race blind is according to the New York Times woke um, ideology to perpetuate racism, right? So you have to constantly be talking about racism and in order to constantly be talking about racism, you have to constantly be talking about race. So I think that's part of what they're doing there. And, you know, while there might be that kind of um, this like weird insistence on labeling every single person who's black, there's also this other on the flip side, again, back to the, the Jewish question, like this weird, constant um, bone picking when it comes to Jewish people and Jewish culture and Israeli culture. And you're just like you're like every turn, you're like, again, we're like seeing The New York Times claim that all of Israeli cuisine has been appropriated from Palestine, you know, it's like over and over and over. It's this, this constant drumbeat. But I, I think the, the deeper trend that you put your finger on is that whenever you see this kind of endless re repetition, endless boom, 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 despite all the facts and all common sense, what you're witnessing is the manufacture of a narrative. That's how a narrative gets created in media. It doesn't get created through one article or one point that somebody makes in a podcast. It gets created when the Times, in article after article, across sections, business, metro, what, whatever it might be, food, books, art, whatever, um, they are making the same point again and again and again and again. And what rises out of that is a narrative. So in this case, that narrative is that is that race matters more than anything and that we have to put it at the center of every single conversation. And that goes back to our point about race versus class. And we're not talking anymore about class. We're not talking about, you know, that that the black person that's being discussed in this article could be a, a multimillionaire. It could be, it doesn't matter anymore. What matters is, is race. So we're, we're, we've exchanged class, race for class as the most important category. And I, I think that essentially that's what it's about, manufacturing that narrative. Dystopian. Well, I've, I've heard some uh, moderate voices that I trust say that the New York Times is still the home to great reporters and great straight reporting uh, and that this is separate from perhaps and overshadowed by the clickbaity opinion section, which is where we get all the white supremacy, CRT and the trans stuff, which is mainly all the stuff I read. Uh, is, this, is this accurate? Um, I think there, of course, there are going to be some good reporters everywhere you go, including the Times. Um, great at this point. I don't, I don't know who I would point to as a great reporter at the Times at the moment. I think there's certainly great reporters in the media today, across the media. Um, and there's even more important than great reporters, lots of good reporters. Like, I, I feel like that gets lost. Like, we're all looking for great. We're all looking for, like, you know, the next Bob Woodward or, or what have you, where... Reality is that most of the the like day-to-day -day news that gets produced that's really essential is just it's done by hardworking reporters and most of the time they don't they're not stars, they don't have brand, personal brands. Um, at the times I think that the narrative so suffuses the culture there that I would be really hard pressed to find that person. To find that reporter who is a reporter, meaning that sort of like shoe leather, blue collar take on what journalism used to be. And instead of that is today, the kind of personal brand manufacturing, you know, superstar with the glint in the eye um, and, and networking more than, more than reporting. I'm, I'm sure that person is at the time still, that the good reporter or someone who's just doing their quiet thing in, in a very nice way and, and producing good stuff. I think most of the times, though, is about those superstars and the people who want to be them. When you look at Maggie Haberman, um, when you look at like you know Peter Baker, or um, there's just a, an endless list. I, I think of the the 
times as um, Jerusalem bureau chief, uh, who's just, it's just a disaster. Like the reporting is just ridiculous. And then you look at people who are at other papers that are smaller or regional or local. And you're like, wow, this person, like you can see how much they sacrificed for a story. That's not going to break the internet. It's not going to win Twitter that day. It's just going to be another little piece in the puzzle. And it probably cost them months of effort. And that's just what they do. So I think the times is not that institution anymore. Um, and I, and I think that maybe we do have those people elsewhere at the post at the Washington post, as an example, um, people are willing to go against the grain, even when it's not a very popular thing to do, but they still do it. So, um, I don't have that kind of optimism for the times well, at the moment. Actually, this is the last question I have because I feel like I'm, I'm pushing the same barrow here, but I, I got no one else to talk to about this. So, uh, you know that you mentioned you mentioned these personalities uh, when i read ezra klein michelle goldberg charles m blow roxanne gay uh, and the defanged republicans that they wheel out um i feel uncomfortable and this includes jake silverstein who i've heard speak at length about the 1619 project all of these people come across to me as uptight completely out of touch totally hysterical wet blankets who cannot stand hearing the other side of the argument. And it's the opposite, say, of what I feel when I hear Jonathan Haidt speak or Steven Pinker for that, for that matter. These guys are cool-headed, rational, and dare I say, capable of humor. Whereas the group of people I mentioned before, possibly the most humorless people I've ever, ever encountered in my entire life. Um, now, Am I being unfair here? These people, and and the the problem is as well that that all of those those headliners, Ezra Klein and whatnot, that kind of is the New York Times for me now. Like like the the, the straight reporting, I think is deep in the in the in the paper itself. The 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 cover is or the or the start page is loaded up with this with these shrill screeching um, modern progressives, and and I find it really overbearing. So, what's your read on it, Ashley? Yeah, I think that's what happens when um, when you start to hold on to your ideology so tightly that you you can't make a joke or or accept a joke because it creates a little bit of daylight between you and and your your totally um, what do they call it true believer um, approach to things. So you know, ideologues are not funny. Hitler's not funny. Mussolini was not funny. Charlie Chaplin lampooning Hitler is really funny because it's like, it, it, it brings us out of this, the, you know, Jordan Peterson terms out of this realm of, of total order, the, the ordered belief of, of a, of a very set and very rigid ideology and into the realm of chaos where you're thinking, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Like it could be funny if I'm wrong. Um, and it could be, it could be my humor might lead me to believe I'm wrong even more dangerously or may, may lead my audience to think I'm wrong. So I think you've got this kind of white knuckling of, of their beliefs in the pages of the newspaper. And they, they kind of hide it with, you know, sometimes a whimsical tone. Like Ezra Klein's got that conversational tone, the blogger tone. Um, Michelle Goldberg is just like absolutely intolerable. Like reading her is so unpleasant. And Maureen Dowd, who's among that group as well, she kind of used to be funny, but it's like, it's so it's such shtick at this point that you're just like you're reading you're like please not again like just don't don't do this again. So I think that is um, that is one hundred percent the case. Like we've lost 
they, they've lost that ability to be self-reflective enough to be funny and to be open and to, to listen to what the other side might have to say to them. That's the biggest downfall is that the, the other side of your ideological divide are not your, you know, your ideological adversaries. They're people. That's the biggest thing. It's like you are not a, a political party. You're not a military. You're not a, a propaganda machine. I mean, they kind of are, but you're not supposed to be. You're supposed to be an organization that listens to what people are saying and really listens to it, not writes it down so that you can use it as evidence that the other side is insane, but listens to what's really going on, put your ear to the ground. So I think that's what's been lost by, especially those columnists. That's, you know, Tom Friedman is just kind of this like flat footed. He's going to say the same thing. You know what he's going to say. You could have a bot write a Tom Friedman column and it would not be worse than Tom Friedman's actual column. So one exception I think is Brett Stevens. I, I really like Brett Stevens and I think he's, I think he really is doing his best. I don't, how he survives there, I don't know, but, um, but I think he, he's a standout. Now we're, we're very mindful of your time here. Um, so we just have one more question for you. I'm, I'm really fascinated to know, do you have any in, intel on the internal reactions to your book? Uh, because yours is the only serious book to comprehensively critique the paper, so they they must be aware of you. Yeah, at this point they're they're aware. I you know I know we've got people in common, like uh, you know some intersecting circles. I would say, I think for them, um, because I decided to do the book the way I did it, which is I did it as my own. I, I worked as my own publisher. I I produced the book. I worked in marketing, book marketing for a long time. And I kind of had this theory that I, I could do this myself. And that goes back to this idea of centralizing, decentralizing media to say, I don't really need a publisher who's going to come and do whatever they want to do and put the book on a two-year uh, publishing cycle. So that if, it, you know, if I came and said, uh, you know, I want to bring this out right now, 2020, they would say, great, we're going to bring it out 2023. So that's, part of the reason why they, it, it makes it much easier for them to ignore because it didn't come, it didn't get the stamp of approval that uh, a random house or like a Scribner or whatever would have given it, which is fine by me. Um, I think that's not where the conversation, the interesting conversation is happening. I don't need the New York review of books to do the lengthy review that a, a more, um, a more sympathetic book would have gotten from about the times would have gotten from that kind of publication. Uh, I think there is probably a point where your audience gets big enough that, that the gatekeeping is not a factor anymore and they just see you as a force that needs to be reckoned with. And that's the point where they begin the attacks. So they haven't begun the attacks on me, at least not the times, um, which means to me that they're not particularly concerned or scared. And I think that's that makes sense. One book is not, the, is not what's at stake here. I think what's at stake is that millions of people around the world are looking at this newspaper and being like, I just don't believe them. I don't believe what they're saying. And that's the threat. Whether they're reckoning with that threat is that that's a much bigger question. And I think that that's where you see that they're probably not, they're probably not grappling with that question. And that to, to me is where their major vulnerability really is. Um, you know, that, they could have some sort of like Musk, Musk style takeover, which is possible. I don't think it's really that feasible given their stock structure, but um, more to the point, they can just be replaced, right? There's not, there's, they've lost 
that monopoly. They've lost the, you know, the, what, the equivalent of like a broadcast license that kept all the network news stations in place. And they just don't have it anymore because it doesn't matter. So I think that's, there, there's no moat, you know, there's no longer a moat. And I think that is the big question for them. Um, and I would be very curious to, to know if anyone's talking about that at the time. So they, they've talked a lot about, you know, their digital strategy. That was the big question for many years. Do, do they have a good digital strategy? Um, but they've never talked about their their ideological strategy or their their strategy, their philosophical strategy to, to dealing with a changing um, media marketplace and a changing political spectrum. And I, think, I think that would be the interesting question for them. Well, Ashley, just a final question, which we ask all of our guests. We'd love to know what you're reading right now. Um, I'm actually reading, which I'm a bit late to the game, but I found it in um, in a secondhand shop. I'm reading Jordan Peterson's um, 12 Rules. I think it's called 12 Rules, 12 Rules for Life. Um, I'm reading a biography on Elon Musk. Again, secondhand shop, found it awesome. And um, I'm reading Andy Gove, Andy Groves, Gove, Grove, uh, the former Intel CEO's book about um, about running Intel in the 90s, um, which inst- interestingly begins with a story about um, media misreporting that lopped off half a billion dollars of Intel's value in one day. Um, so that's a, that's another another great story. Wow, that sounds fascinating. That's a good yeah. That's a really interesting story. Quick, long story short is that they, Intel came out with this really important processor in like 1994 they found that there was a a bug in the processor a little flaw and the flaw was that um, there would be an error on a spreadsheet for an average user once every 27,000 years so if you use the you use the program for 27,000 years you would get an error (laughs) cnn found out there was a flaw they blew it up they sent you know camera camera crews to intel's headquarters and triggered this massive massive um, panic about the chip and it cost intel 450 million dollars which means it cost intel's shareholders 450 million dollars which included pensions which included you know just regular people who just lost that money because cnn wanted to make a spectacle and they did well that sounds fantastic uh ashley just we want to thank you for being so generous with your time uh today thank you so much thank you guys we appreciate it Thank you for listening to the New Flesh podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, long live the New Flesh.